When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora, William Ray here. Welcome to Black Sheep. I think most of us are familiar with the idea of a celebrity criminal. Not the Jack the Ripper, Charles Manson characters. I'm I'm talking about charismatic criminals. People who do bad things, but who sort of get the brand of a lovable scamp, an adventuring rogue. Today's Black Sheep is a criminal in that vein. Amy Bock, the most prolific con artist of New Zealand history. She's also probably the most famous crossdresser of New Zealand history. And nobody has been able to work out whether she was crazy or just a really good actor. I posed the question in the title of the biography, Mad or Bad? And people have said, well, which one was she? <laughs> and she was both and neither. This is Jenny Coleman. She's a historian at Massey University specialising in women's history and, as mentioned, she wrote a book about the life and exploits of Amy Bock. Amy's particularly well-known for one particular exploit. In 1909, she spent 15 weeks pretending to be a rich sheep farmer called Percy Redwood living in a small community in South Otago. She scammed pretty much everyone in town and capped it all off by marrying the daughter of her landlord in a high society wedding. When this was all exposed, Amy Bock was quite literally the story of the decade. It's hard to find any other person who got more media coverage in that time. The newspapers delved into her life story, interviewed childhood friends and unearthed old court records, revealing a lifetime of scams, lies, fraud. But the one question they were never able to answer is that same question Jenny Coleman poses. Mad or bad? Amy Bock was born in Hobart, Tasmania, in 1859. When she was still pretty young, the family moved to a rural town called Sale, a few hundred kilometres east of Melbourne. The family had a solid reputation in Sale. Amy's father ran a photography business, cutting-edge technology at the time, and that business helped to make connections with the movers and shakers in town. But there was a tragedy at the heart of the Bock household. Amy's mother suffered a serious mental disorder. She would have uh, very uh, manic episodes um, and then episodes of melancholia. So probably what we would think of now as manic depressive. But in her manic episodes, she was actually uh, quite destructive. Um, She was delusional um, and considered a danger to others. These delusions were pretty serious. 
One time Amy's mum's found standing in her front yard, holding a knife and yelling she's Lady Macbeth. As the eldest child in the house, Amy's job is to look after her mum while her dad's away at work. She had a special kind of relationship with her mother. She seemed to be able to, I don't know if it was control her so much, but she seemed to be able to communicate with her at times when other people couldn't. So um, it's a bit sketchy on the details, but I do get the impression that she she kind of was left with a, a level of responsibility that you wouldn't expect for someone who was, you know, basically about 10 years old. When Amy turns 12, her mother's committed to a lunatic asylum. Amy never sees her again. She dies just three years later. Amy's still a teenager, and just like any teenager experiencing a trauma, she starts doing things which are, well, a bit strange. One time she goes into a shop and buys a whole lot of books under her father's name. Then she just gives them all away to random people in town with completely made-up stories of how and why she got hold of these books. You know, I think that's probably... um understandable that a child with the kind of precociousness that Amy showed um, would maybe uh, resort to herself a bit more, possibly living a few little fantasies. And of course, she was very involved with her father in uh, the theatre. She's someone whose childhood, I think, lends itself in lots of ways to, um, to being a young adult who grows up being able to conjure up lots of stories and potentially act them out. Amy's dad is worried she's going down the same path as her mother, sliding towards insanity. He uses his connections to pull some strings, gets Amy a position as a sole-charged teacher at a local school. She's about 19 years old at this point. But if Amy's dad hoped a teaching job would settle her down, he was sadly mistaken. She's basically scamming them, fidgeting the uh, school attendance roles, because her salary was dependent on... Um, how many children were in attendance. Um, She's putting in claims for getting things like broken windows fixed, where there's been no broken windows. There's a lot of things going on that are early indications for us of what actually comes to be a lifestyle of fraud. Amy isn't just scamming the education department. She's also borrowing money from friends and not paying it back. She'll buy stuff from local shops on credit using false names. And some of these scams are just really bizarre. She would go around all the undertakers and uh, order up coffins and get them sent all to the same family. And they were a very respectable family and very healthy family, I might point out as well. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for those people to all of a sudden have coffins being delivered in their name Um, with no idea of of why or how. So quite bizarre um, scenarios for some of her scams. I mean, what was in it for her? This is a bit of a running theme in Amy's scams. Quite often, there is no direct benefit to her. She buys stuff on credit, then just gives it away. Then when the shopkeeper comes after her for money, she pays them off by scamming money from the education department. It's sort of like a pyramid scheme, but there's no one at the top of it. When she's finally caught and put on trial for fraud in 1885, a local newspaper put it like this. She had a perfect mania for what she called shopping, which consisted of ordering goods she did not require and could not pay for. 
on all hand, astonishment is expressed that the girl had thus far contrived to keep out of the lunatic asylum, of which her mother was a confinee for many years. Amy Bock plays up this link between her crimes and her mother's mental illness when she takes the stand. She's she's quite a small person. She can easily come across as, as quite frail and alone. You've got plenty of people saying she's been odd all her life. Her mother wasn't um, mentally with it. Um, we always knew she would go the same way. So she's got a whole lot of people saying those things. She herself says, I can't help it. It's in my blood. I can't help it. And she's she's a great actor. So she did get off. She basically got off um, discharged without conviction, um, but um, kind for, of on for a quite bond. serious fraud, by the way. Quite like, serious fraud. You yeah. wouldn't get away with it these days. The no, crime. you wouldn't. Um, so she's really lucky. But I, but I think that did establish a pattern where she knew that she could put on quite an act, that others would support her, and um, and she got away with it. And it wasn't just the court which brought this explanation for her crimes. The newspapers and the general public go along with it too. Much sympathy has been felt for Miss Bock, as her mistake is believed to have been caused more by a hereditary misfortune than a criminal intent. If that idea of a hereditary misfortune is confusing you, remember this is the 1880s. Eugenics is a big deal. Lots of powerful people believed things like crime, addiction, immorality, insanity were all caused by genetics. In the minds of those people, Amy's mum's mental health problems and Amy's criminality were inextricably linked. Hereditary misfortune, as that newspaper described it. By the way, if you're interested in hearing more about all this, go back and listen to the episode we did about the history of eugenics in New Zealand. It's crazy stuff. And speaking of New Zealand, shortly before this court case happened, Amy's father moved to Auckland, and after she's cleared, Amy goes to join him. It's not clear how Amy got the money she needed to pay for her trip across the Tasman, but Jenny Coleman has a pretty good guess of what was happening. She will have scammed her way. And and that's what happens throughout her life. There's, there's patches that are very quiet, and you don't know what's going on. And it seems to me that's probably when she got away with things. After arriving in New Zealand, Amy starts what will become her lifelong career, a professional con artist. She goes to one town, fleeces people for all they're worth, and then moves on. I mean, have you ever had a go at tallying up the number of scams that she was involved in? Oh, I did, but I can't remember. It'd be oh, in the hundreds, wouldn't oh, it? Oh, they would, yeah, absolutely. Like, easily. Yeah, it, I think so. And I mean, if you if you took into account the ones we probably don't know about, but almost certainly haven't, it could be in the thousands. And some of them would be so, just so small, um, but some of them are, are really in, increasingly intricate. And what we might call one scam has actually got about 10 different elements to it. Amy Box scams often have a familiar ring to them. Usually it goes like this. She starts off going to a boarding house, strikes up conversations, makes friends with the other boarders and with the landlord. She buys stuff from local stores on credit, then gives it away to her new friends as gifts, cultivating a reputation as a wealthy, generous kind of person. She then uses this reputation to convince people to lend her money, which she either uses to buy even more stuff or maybe to pay off some of her creditors. 
this web of debts and promises and gifts and scams just gets more and more complicated over time. And eventually, she gets caught. Amy is jailed eight times in eight years for fraud and other related charges, and the police start to get wise to her particular brand of crime. Over time, what would happen is the police would recognise the stamp of her crimes, and they would come to the conclusion that it had to be Amy Bock, even if they didn't have any evidence against her. It would have to be her, because she was only the only one who was clever enough to do this, or it had some of the hallmarks of her kind of modus operandi. So, you know, her cleverness caught her out sometimes. I mean, it's in the newspapers. They sort of describe her as being too clever for her own good, because any time a cop saw a complicated scan, they go, yeah, that looks like an Amy Bock to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and that is what happened. That's precisely what happened. And when Amy is hauled off to court, she uses the same tactic she had pioneered in Australia. She blames her crimes on mental illness. Here's what she told the court in one case. The malady I suffer from now has been upon me from childhood and no one but God and myself know the fearful horror that I have had to face year after year and the knowledge that instead of my being able to fight successfully against it, as I've prayed so often to do, it has rather overpowered me more and more. Specifically, Amy says she suffers kleptomania, a mental illness which causes people to compulsively steal. And to be honest, it kind of fits. As we mentioned, a lot of the time Amy isn't stealing to benefit herself. She often just gives stuff away as soon as she gets it. But the courts are not keen to endorse the idea of kleptomania as a legal defence. As one judge put it... We cannot give any support or show any favour to kleptomania. It would never do to countenance it. If we did, a good many people would soon be bound to think that they were suffering with that disease. But while Amy's mental illness defence didn't play well with the courts, it did work with the public and with the newspapers. Amy was a wholesome kind of criminal. She was never violent, never drank, never got involved in prostitution, always admitted her crimes as soon as she was caught. Plus, her scams were entertaining. They were so audacious, so bold, so bizarre... One time she was on trial in Dunedin, accused of stealing a gold watch from her landlady. The prosecutor asked this landlady why she became suspicious of Amy, and she replied... She had a great number of excellent testimonials, all in her own handwriting. The whole court burst out laughing. Another time she went to live with the Salvation Army just after getting out of prison and managed to talk them into giving her enough money to buy and furnish a six-room house in Oamaru. She even scammed the real estate agent into giving her extra change. Another time, she used a complicated series of fake documents, letters and just fast talking to get enough money to buy a chicken farm. One paper wrote this about her. The outstanding fact is that in New Zealand, perhaps in Australasia, this woman stands supreme in her cleverness over other female criminals. But Amy's fame catches up with her. She's so famous that it's getting harder and harder to get away with her scams. So what do you do if you're the most famous female criminal in the country? Well, you stop being female. The easiest way to 
not be the focus of attention because they were looking for a woman of a certain size and um, age was to not be a woman of that certain size and age. In 1909, Amy invents a new persona. Percival Leonard Carroll Redwood, Percy for short, a rich sheep farmer from Canterbury. By the way, this scam is almost uncovered before it even begins, because when Amy turns up to a boarding house in Dunedin dressed in a man's clothing, the ten-year-old daughter of the owner sees through it immediately and runs to her mother, saying, Mum! Oh, there is a woman at the door dressed in man's clothes? The girl is quietly shushed and sent upstairs to avoid any embarrassment. I know, that's fabulous because, um, you know, the, the innocent child sees through her straight away. Um, and that happened really early on if we were going there. So um, so I don't know if she just avoided that child from then on or what, but her, her cover could have been blown within five minutes. And what is her cover? I mean, who is the Percy Red- Redwood that she's pretending to be? Oh, it's the um, nephew of the Archbishop, actually. <laughs> um Percy Redwood is a good person um, who has lived a good life, a friendly person, but of reasonably delicate health. And so that way there's a, a reason for why is this person not in, you know, sort of solid employment and things like that. And also quite from quite a wealthy background, sort of you get a feeling of sort of being a upper middle class kind of family. Um. Absolutely. The, the, the picture of Percy's family that is painted by Amy is a very respectable family, very comfortably financially and uh, just salt of the earth people. Amy starts her Percy Redwood scam in Dunedin, but apparently Percy's doctor had suggested the sea air might do him some good, so he starts going on regular trips to a place called Albion House at Nugget Point. It's at the northern end of the Catlins coast. He seemed to make a lot of friends at the boarding house. Here's what one guy said after the whole scam was exposed. He was an all right chap. He had plenty of money, and if you wanted anything, he was the boy to buy it for you. The essence of all that was good and kind, he appeared to have to do good to other people. His affability and obliging nature made us all like him. (laughs) Percy makes friends with people at Albion House. Then he finds ways to convince them to lend him money. One time he claims his wallet fell overboard during a fishing trip and a woman who hears the story lends him her entire life savings. So Percy's a bit hapless, but he's generous, friendly, good listener. And the owners of Albion House begin to wonder if this wealthy, unmarried sheep farmer might be a good match for their daughter, 30-year-old Agnes Ottaway, Nessie for short. Within a matter of weeks, Percy and Nessie are engaged. There isn't anything on record of any real romance. People have suggested that... um, Amy taking on the persona of Percy um, is because um, Amy actually wanted to have relationships with women. Well, I don't know if that's true. It might be, but there isn't any suggestion um, in the records that we have available of any romance. And I think, too, the fact that, you know, you, you, you're just going to show a slight interest um, before 
becoming betrothed, nothing much is going to happen the way it might today. Mm. I mean, you don't have to actually have a genuine relationship no. to, before you get married. No. That's presumed to come afterwards. Absolutely. Is there much suggestion that, that Amy was actually aiming for a relationship out, out of the scam, or, or was it sort of just something which happened organically and she sort of went along with it? For me personally, I think it was how far can I make this scam work? You know, this was new territory in terms of um, having a, a consistent persona as a male and getting involved with a female. So this, I think this would have been pretty close to the, the pinnacle of Amy's career of being a con artist. In some ways, Percy Redwood's wedding is a perfect example of an Amy Box scam. Her MO as a criminal was go big or go home. The ring Percy buys Nessie has five diamonds in it. He buys fancy suits, extravagant wedding cakes. Invitations are sent out to all of the most important people in town. But there's method to the madness, because this is how Amy makes her scams work. She's so energetic, so engaged, so bold, that people can't believe it could all be a lie. And that's important, because by the time this wedding happens, there's a lot of muttering about Percy Redwood. For one thing, he owes a lot of people a lot of money. Remember that woman who lent him her life savings when he lost his wallet on a fishing trip? She hasn't been paid back. Neither have dozens of shop owners who've sold him things on credit. Even Nessie's father is starting to get suspicious. He interrogates Percy, trying to ensure he really is the wealthy man he claims. Amy ducks and dodges. She promises the money's right around the corner. That is her speciality, is the gift of the gab. And so the wedding that was going to be planned was a real society wedding. You know, everyone was there from from the local MPs to um, anyone who was anyone within the district. It was a very, very big affair. So, um, you know, you, you don't want to draw unnecessary attention um, before the event or certainly at the event. But things are starting to get quite tricky in terms of managing the rumours and managing Percy's assurances that no, this is this, you know, this is all gonna come through at the end. And part of how she does that is forging a lot of letters supposedly from Percy's mother. And they're all sort of saying Oh yes, no, sorry. I've I've lost the money that I was meant to be sending Percy, but it's it's coming on the next train. Don't you worry, and all that kind of thing. So there were promises there, um, but also she was going to be at the wedding mm. um, right up until the last minute, and there were several family members who were going to be at the wedding until the last minute. And so, of course, whatever has or hasn't been said up until then, as soon as those family members are there, you know everything's kosher. The day of the wedding arrives. It's an enormous event. Hundreds of people are there. But there are some very important seats empty. Nobody from Percy's supposed family is there. Amy forges letters explaining that they wanted to come, but they couldn't because another family wedding was booked for the same day. Even as Percy and Nessie are walking down the aisle, you have to wonder if there weren't people whispering in the back of the church. Where's the groom's family? What's going on here? Who is this Percy Redwood, really?
I think Nessie's father is working really, really hard to um, just keep the lid on things because he doesn't want the embarrassment on the day of the wedding. But there are a number of people talking and muttering in circles. So I think it would have been a fabulous, fabulous place to have been on that day, um, just for the um, people would have known something was going on, but not quite knowing what. Percy and Nessie exchange rings, say their vows. The priest pronounces them man and wife. Nobody calls Amy's bluff. She picks on things that, um, in many respects, are so not believable. But she's so bold in her scams. I mean, she sort of relies on that, and I guess this is what all con artists do to a degree, of people not wanting to make a fuss, of not wanting to... um, not wanting to call someone out and then be wrong because that would just be so embarrassing. And that's classic Amy as well. She, you know, she plays on the fact that um, people don't want to be shown up, they don't want to be embarrassed. But the rumours don't die down. The wedding was meant to be the day that everyone would have proof Percy Redwood really was the man he claimed. His debtors would get to meet his rich family and get the money they were owed. Nessie's father is very unhappy. He makes it clear that the marriage will remain in name only until Percy can prove he's financially secure. The tension heightens. People start talking to the police. Eventually, the story reaches the ears of a detective called Henry Hunt, a man who dealt with Amy Bock many times over the years. He thought Percy's web of unpaid debts and unfulfilled promises sounded very familiar, so he showed a photo of Amy Bock to people who knew Percy Redwood. And that's when the whole scam unravels. Detective Hunt drives out to Albion House and knocks on Percy Redwood's door. Yes? The game is up, Amy. All right. If you have anything to do, do it as quietly as possible so as not to disturb the house. You are Amy Bock. I arrest you on a charge of fraud. I see you know all. Yes, I will tell you all about it and plead guilty at the proper time. Amy, still dressed as Percy Redwood, is led out to the waiting carriage and driven back to the police station in Balclutha, waving out the window to people she recognised along the way. The police talk to Nessie's family. They reveal Percy Redwood's true identity. To which Nessie's dad apparently responded, Well, might have been worse. By the time Amy Bock arrives at the police station, the local newspaper has picked up on the story. And from that point, newspapers all around the country go absolutely mental. The champion crook of the century. A woman bridegroom. Exploits of an adventurous, an extraordinary story. A marvellous masquerade. A woman dressed as a man marries a Port Molyneux girl. In man's attire, a woman's escapade. The biggest scoop of the century. 
It was, um, yeah, so we're talking 1909. They went all out. There were pages and pages, pages day after day. And then, of course, um, there was the, uh, the, the fallout and, and the, um, the case going to court. I mean, there's multiple stories of, you know, newspapers running out of, of copies of paper to sell. It must have made yeah. them megabucks. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, Amy cashed in on it as well. She, um, she had uh, some of the wedding photos made into postcards and pictures of her as Percy Redwood on arrest in the big duffel coat and whatnot and uh, sold those off to um, raise money for her um, court appearance. And Amy and the newspapers aren't the only ones to turn a profit. The baker who made her wedding cake was so overwhelmed with new orders, he even bought the cake back from Amy so it could sit in his shop window. A local tailor put an ad in his window which read, A man or woman, it matters not which you are, but you can see at a glance that my goods are the best quality and lowest price in Balclutha. Even politicians got in on the act. In one speech, the Prime Minister, Sir Joseph Ward, said a rival politician's promises were like the wedding vows of Amy Bock, not to be trusted. Obviously, the juicy bit of the story for everyone is the cross-dressing. By the way, female cross-dressing has a longer history than you might think. I'm not talking about transgenderism. I'm talking about women who identify as female, but who choose to live as men for reasons which aren't linked to sexual identity. There were a lot of women who found it easier to adopt a male persona in order to get work, mm. somewhere to live. You know, we're still talking um, times where it's it's not really acceptable for a woman to be on her own, um, but it is for a man. So you've got a lot more independence of movement, um, you know, if, if you've taken away that kind of gender issue. So cross-dressing itself isn't that unusual, historically speaking. But Amy's particular case, marrying another woman without her knowing, that's pretty crazy stuff. It's like something out of Shakespeare. And Amy doesn't seem to have been particularly remorseful for tricking Nessie and the rest of the town. When she was first interviewed by the police, she said... When people are so gullible, you can't blame me. I believe I could go from end to end of New Zealand and take down every nine persons out of ten. Even when she's in court, she doesn't show much repentance. There's no use expressing my regret because I would not be believed. Which is probably true. But the weird thing is that Amy's victims didn't seem that angry with her. For example, the woman who gave Percy her life savings... When his true identity was revealed, she just laughed at the whole thing. My word, it's just unfortunate. It took me many a long year to save up, and all for that little beauty. I suppose it went to buy that ring. The people conned by Amy stuck up for her. Some even seemed a little bit confused whether to refer to Amy by her real name or as Percy Redwood. I don't care what you say about Mr Redwood or Amy Bock, or whatever you call the person. I mean, he used to come in here every day and sit on that corner, and he was quite the dearest, kindest little soul I ever knew. He may be mad, or a criminal. I say, God bless him. Even Nessie's family seemed inclined to let things slide. At Amy's trial, they publicly forgave her. I don't know whether these people are just suckers, or... Maybe it's best to just have a laugh and get on with life rather than harbour a grudge over the whole thing. Anyway, as always, Amy Bock pleads guilty at trial, but tries to mitigate her sentence by saying she had a mental disorder which compelled her to lie and steal. 
I think it was more theatrical than um, than her usual performances in court. She was very aware of the significance of the trial. Um, I mean, do you think she was acting? Because there's all kinds of talk about her sort of breaking down and not being able to continue and stuff. You can imagine that maybe the seriousness of the situation has caught up with her and she's genuinely feeling that emotion. But given, given her sort of priors, it's hard to hard to credit her with sincerity all the time. Yeah, it is very hard to credit her with sincerity. She she must have been feeling really on the back foot because there was no way she was going to be able to talk away out of this at court. You know, it was probably a foregone conclusion what the outcome was going to be. But um, but that shouldn't stop you putting on a good performance. This mm. might be the last time you get <laughs> you get that many people looking at you for a long, long time. This trial has high stakes for Amy Bock, and not just because the national newspapers are reporting every word. The charges that were laid weren't as many as could have been laid, um, but she was looking at a more serious sentence because um, this was, you know, years and years now of um, fraudulent behaviour, and there'd been the recently passed um, Habitual Offenders Act as well, it changes your status and you're treated quite differently. I mean, you have the the potential to be spend most of the rest of your life locked up. Absolutely. After several dramatic court appearances, Amy Bock is convicted on two counts of false pretenses and one of forgery. A few months later, she's up for sentencing at the Supreme Court, standing at the dock in front of the judge. You will be sentenced to imprisonment for a term of two years with hard labour on each charge concurrently and will also be declared a habitual criminal. Amy's worst fears are realised. She's locked up at Dunedin Jail. Just like always, Amy Bock behaves herself in prison and after four years she's released on probation. Because she had that habitual offenders tag, she knew that any further scams were likely to see her locked up for a very long time, so she manages to keep her nose clean. Well, maybe not clean, but at least less grubby than normal. Yeah, she does. Um, She gets work up and she's up New Plymouth Way. She got transferred to the jail up there and, um, you know, she works in an old folks home for a while and... But reasonably quickly, I think, finds herself a, a small community where she's going to be looked after, mm. which essentially is, is what happens for, you know, the last kind of phase of her life. And it's sort of like she doesn't quite give up scamming, but she sort of, everyone sort of has kind of accepts it as sort of an inevitable side effect of having Amy in your midst. They do, and, and I find that really interesting. It's like they let her, they, they excused her. Um, but I think probably what happened is, for the most part, they were just sort of small, minor scams that didn't really hurt anyone. Um, there were a couple, um, and she did end up going back to court a couple of times. But um, but I think, yeah, there was just this acceptance, really, and um, almost like a, that's our Amy, you know? Mm. Like they had, there was some kudos for, you know, this small little town called Awakino because, um, and, and Moko, which is where she was living, they they had this fabulously notorious habitual criminal in their midst. And in this small town, Amy gets married to a man this time. 
It's actually kind of an adorable story. She's at a dance at the town hall and sort of half-heartedly says, I don't suppose anyone would like to marry me. And the Swedish labourer called Karl Christofferson sticks up his hand and says, Oh, I will. The wedding's held just a couple of days later. And you've got to wonder what that was about. It was a convenient way of changing her name Mm. um, because, you know, she became Mrs Christofferson. Um, And so, you know, maybe that was part of the appeal. Um, And uh, I don't think there was any chance of any kind of emotional attachment. Um, In fact, he got a bit annoyed with her fairly quickly and, and, um, and they parted their ways. Part of the reason you think that they split was that he was being asked to answer for all of her various debts. Well, yes, and that was the law at the time as well, you know. I mean, they were husband and wife, so um, so he had some responsibility. So, um, you know, the sooner he could get rid of her, the better from his point of view. And, I mean, she never really stops doing these little scams. I mean, well into her, what, 60s and 70s, yes. she's still scamming people. Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, she was, um, I think she was uh, 84 when she died. Um, and she, the last sort of major scam was only a few years before she died. But, um, but again, she was looked after, um, you know, she was looked after in her community and then she went up through, um, I think the Salvation Army. She was in a home with them for a while. Gets really patchy toward the end of her life. But, um, but again, the, uh, the little bits we know are usually around, um, things where she got herself into trouble. If you ask me... The fact Amy was scamming people right up into her old age makes me think there really was some mental disorder behind her crimes. Maybe she really was a kleptomaniac or had bipolar disorder. But Jenny Coleman says she's never been able to say for sure why Amy did the things she did, and she gets a little bit frustrated with those who do have firm opinions. Right from uh, her earliest life, people were saying what made her tick. I think as a biographer, that was one of the things that um, that kind of annoyed me, really. Like, um, she became public property. Um, Everybody had a theory about what was it that was behind the things that she did. And even when she was young, that was happening. From the time she first went to court, that started happening and she became public property. She was in the newspapers all the time. And then throughout her life... Each time she appeared in the newspapers, they'd drag back all that old stuff. And you'd see over and over again, everyone would have a theory of what made her tick. Even now, people still do. I mean, I guess it's nice having sort of a famous person to hang your theory on. Like if you're writing about sort of the history of sexual dynamics in New Zealand, if you're looking at the history of lesbians in New Zealand, it's quite nice to be able to go, oh, Amy Bock, maybe she was a lesbian. Maybe mm. that's what um, was behind that whole thing. Absolutely. And um, and a, a lot of people have, well, a lot of people have claimed that she was lesbian and claimed definitely that she was lesbian, but they've claimed lots of things about her. And so from my point of view, I was interested in looking at all the different claims that people had made about her and just kind of problematising them Mm. because um, I don't think we can ever really know what made her tick. Um, I posed the question in the title of the biography, Mad or Bad, and people have said, well, which one was she? (laughs) (laughs) And she was both and neither Mm. um, at the same time. I mean, she just strikes me as just a bit of an odd person. She was a real character, that's for sure. Um... I'd say she was just a typical hard case. Yeah. 
special thanks to Jenny Coleman. For more on Amy Bock's story, you can check out her book, Mad or Bad, The Life and Exploits of Amy Bock. For more Black Sheep, you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts or whatever podcasting app you prefer. It's all totally free. Also, go and check out RNZ's other great podcasts. For more fascinating stuff on women's history, check out Beyond Kate, a series on how women won the right to vote in New Zealand and how battles over gender and politics are continuing to this day. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin, and our sound engineer is William Saunders. We had voice acting help from a whole bunch of people, but extra special thanks to Lily and Anna Scott for playing the 10-year-old girl who nearly unmasked Amy at the very beginning of the Percy Redwood scam. Mm-hmm.